This is the Quip and Quill podcast. I'm your host, Devin Rue, professional fantasy cartographer and illustrator. Hey, everybody. I am Aaron Radney. I am a fantasy illustrator, world builder, and cartographer. I specialize in uh, Afro fantasy at the moment, but just more broadly, I specialize in doing uh, diverse characters and illustrations, non-Eurocentric stuff, and just generally trying to make art that opens up the the fantasy space as much as uh, one person really can. So, hey, it's great to be here. Uh, so we're going to kind of dive into, obviously, um, sort of what that means. You know, um, I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand or think about, I should say, because I'm sure they understand. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people don't think about the fact that this is all or, or the majority of fantasy in the tabletop space is about medieval Europe, but specific or more specifically white Europe. That's a good that's a very good descriptor, because if you actually do some digging, you will find people traveled, people moved. There were folks from all over the place, all over Europe for a very long time. (laughs) Yes, yes. So, you know, uh, a lot of this, a lot of the stories, or at least, um, you know, because obviously now we are seeing more diversity, but we're still seem to be very hyper-focused on just medieval, you know, Europe. And it's like, oh, we we need to expand and not just in a sci-fi way. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, let's talk about your setting. Let's talk about the inspiration behind it. And, you know, that whole, that whole thing. Awesome. And the work oh, you do. Oh, I love this. So uh, my setting <laughs> is a world that I call Hanan. It is a pan-African inspired fantasy world. Uh, So it pulls stuff from all across the black diaspora, uh, but mainly from uh, black America and from kind of West Africa, which are the places that I kind of know the most about. Uh, But I'm always doing more digging and more research. Uh, Hanan is a world of peace and bounty built upon a magically binding treaty known as the Mage Chief Accords, uh, forged from the desire of the griot mages in that setting to end the relentless conflicts that were going on in that space for a very long time. It's led to an alliance of three stationary nations on the continent known as Zanza, Atlia, and Kem. Since then, Hanan has known relative peace with the nations using the Accords as a framework for government and diplomacy amongst each other. But there are always threats, and so uh, people in groups that would see that peace sundered and the accords destroyed for one reason or another. Guarding against this are the mages and mage chiefs. These are the educational and spiritual leaders of the people of Hanan, uh, often kind of the main characters of these stories that I've been building for this world. Uh, And they are the ones who have the duty to kind of protect the accords, protect the knowledge in Hanan, and ensure the world doesn't fall into chaos or stagnation. What exactly is uh, an Afrocentric setting comparatively to a white European one? So, you know, uh, 
Afrocentric just means focused on Africa. Eurocentric just means, you know, focused on Europe. Those are not value judgment terms. I kind of want to make that clear because I know how the internet works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. These are descriptive terms. These are not uh, value judgments. So let's just, let's start there. But uh, in, in that way, what I try to do, I'm pulling from what I've been able to pull together, what I've been able to learn about African history, African mythology. Uh, it pulls from uh, African geography, uh, again, history, the empires that existed on the continent, the events, the battles, the stories, all of the same things that make up all fantasy, just pulled from a different part of the world. You know, I grew up on a whole bunch of the classic fantasy stuff, even though uh, this may or may not be known to the people who kind of have seen me around the internet. I've talked about this before. Uh, I was not a Tolkien reader as a child. A whole bunch of people I know read Tolkien when they were kids. Uh, That was not my fantasy epic. Uh, My fantasy epic was the Belgarian, which is still, again, very Eurocentric, but different beast. Uh, very fun that I enjoyed, but definitely a different beast than Tolkien. And I read a whole bunch of fantasy growing up, and I started kind of noticing it only pulled from a few places. But the world is huge, and there are so many interesting bits of history and belief systems around the world. Most of the time in fantasy, though, I was only seeing Europe, maybe a little bit, of East Asia here and there, depending on what the author's interests were. Uh, and you you got different flavors over there. You got the occasional Celtic-inspired one. You got a few Greek and Roman-inspired fantasy worlds and things, and I've enjoyed most of them. But I was right. like... This is not in any way like saying, like, just because something is Eurocentric that it's bad or anything. It's just being able to have a... a a flavor, you know, a, a different flavor. Right. We're all at this banquet for the tabletop RPG space. Every once in a while, you just want to you just want to eat something different. Or maybe that's just your taste in general. And it's kind of nice to have something created more towards your taste. Exactly. It's like if you are at a buffet, but you never see your favorite things there. You never see the stuff that directly appeals to you. You might not feel as welcome in that buffet. And then sometimes you got sometimes you got to have a talk with the with the people running the show and be like, okay, I'll do it myself. <laughs> you know, so you got to make your own buffet every once in a while and invite other people to come and uh, you know sit at your table. I'm glad you I'm glad you put you. in the like invite other people here because that's because I'm not I'm not cooking this just for myself. As much as it is for right. me, it's not just. For me, right, and and because uh, I know we're going to get this question at some point, um, your skin color as a player doesn't matter. You can play in in any setting. It's just as long as the characters that you're choosing and creating are respectful, right, towards that setting and the culture that it represents, right. Again, just. Don't be a jerk about it. Seems to be like such a such a simple thing to say, and it is, and it should be far simpler for a lot of folks to do. But again, we know how some things go. Right, as Will Wheaton would say, "Don't be a dick." Don't be a dick. 
Yeah. Oh man. But yeah, so like that is that's a big part of it. Um, the whole thing got born, funny enough, out of a single job. Many years ago, I got asked to be invited to do a uh, to do an, an interior illustration for a anthology that was full of uh, black fantasy stuff. Uh, it was specifically a genre called Sword and Soul, which is kind of the Afro, you know, Afrocentric version of Sword and Sorcery. You know, Sword and Sorcery implies all those like Tarzan and Conan style things. Uh, there's an author named Charles Saunders who kind of codified this genre. And the people who were running uh, this anthology were big inspired by Charles Saunders. And after that, uh, I started thinking about what my own kind of world like that would be. And that's how Hanan got started after that project when I was doing something in somebody else's world, I wanted my own. And it spiraled out of that back in 2014 or 15. And here we are eight years or so later, and I'm still building out this setting. It's still a work in progress, but I am I am loving the process of putting the whole thing together. What do you what do you feel is like the biggest difference between what you're creating and what we're very used to seeing in the industry, whether it's character wise, whether it's culture wise or or what do you what do you think is the thing that's going to be like, oh, God, this is so entirely different. See, that's hard. That's actually kind of hard for me because there's a lot of things that are different just because in a lot of Eurocentric fantasy Black and brown people haven't existed until recently. Right. Uh, right. You know, it's, and it's not, sometimes it's malicious, but sometimes it's just this idea, erroneous or not, you know, this, this idea, or I should say purposefully erroneous or not purposefully, that black people don't have a place in fantasy or they don't have a place in these kind of medieval European inspired settings. Right. Oh, you have to be historically accurate. You, okay, you can, and it still includes black people. It still people. includes black people. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You have dragons in your setting that are metaphorical nukes and yet melanin and melanin somehow breaks the immersion. Right. Right. <laughs> what a weird fucking thing to say. Like, you have people... No you have people who can tear the tops off mountains with a thought, and melon and melanin is where you draw the line, <laughs> right? Like literally, people can read your minds, shoot lightning from their hands, float, like you name it. But skin color, right? That's that's where it's like, oh god, no, that's that's not realistic. So yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, so so yeah. some of that is just the like the nature of it being there but in again in my setting there is this this kind of flip of what is considered the default because again we are dealing with a continent inspired by Africa um, and in a lot of a lot of fantasy stories if you do get a darker skinned character they're usually kind of exotified they're usually uh, either the only representative of that area we get 
and they're kind of the kind of the exotic other or in a lot of cases because we often use uh, dark as evil or black as evil as you know the shorthand for that in fantasy because fantasy uses a lot of shorthand uh, that that, that think, often ends up being okay. where you get kind of the the witch doctor or the evil sorcerer you know the, Disney was very Disney for example again intentionally or not did this a lot where their heroes tended to be lighter than their villains as just that very quick color coding uh, and Hanan doesn't do that that and I think if, if you only look at things at a glance that's probably the easiest quickest thing you're going to be dealing with but I think the other thing is that the language of fantasy is very different here and when I say language I'm talking primarily about like the visual language I'm pulling from again just an entirely different continent so you're getting different clothing patterns different cuts different uh different environments so of course that's going to change the way people dress the way people prepare for things all of that stuff that goes into world building I think a lot of that is actually part of the, lack of a better term, almost fear a lot of writers and creators of settings have is, you know, especially if they're not, whether immersed in the culture, whether it, whether it's American or, you know, African specifically or whatever. Um, I think, I think the tremendous fear is, um, or even players, for that matter, just real, or DMs, I should say, um, you know, trying to put a setting in front of their players and it being disrespectful in the sense of, or it being so other than what we currently see a great deal of. You know, it's like, oh my God, are, are there going to be like tribes? Are do what? Are they wearing? I'm trying to think of a stereotypical, uh, you know, spear wielding. Right. right sheet wearing yeah and it is and it is it's hard because yeah when when you have only uh one of the things i always say i'm gonna gonna come at it from this angle one of the things i say a lot is that we contextualize the world through stories good stories expand our ability to kind of empathize and understand other people. It's often the only way we're going to get to experience certain things, certain people, certain walks of life. And good stories should expand our ability to to do those things. But when you get stories that are more reductive or in in some ways, you know, unfortunately kind of hateful, it shrinks that. And when you only have those less than uh, ah, less than respectful images to go from it makes it it can make it hard and it can make the whole process kind of daunting like I'm not unsympathetic to that reality I think at least diving into the world or picking up something where it is different even if you don't necessarily play that particular module or that specific setting include aspects of it in your homebrew or in your your world as well because a, first of all a very diverse setting is one far more realistic than having an entire planet that is essentially medieval white europe yeah. 
Absolutely. And I think some of that can also come from again, the whole writing what you know thing. Especially when you aren't when there when there aren't other things to kind of help you expand your knowledge base. Like if if you only ever read one kind of story, you're not gonna have as much stuff to steal from for your games. Because <laughs> let's be real, we all steal from every other kind of media for our inspiration yeah. to build our, you know, to build our worlds, to build our stories, to build our campaigns. That's a fucking loop. But, you know, there, and that's, that's why I love history because history is just the longest running soap opera. <laughs> oh yeah. No. Uh-huh. Absolutely. I, I have worlds <laughs> that have been inspired by things as different as the U S cold war and the uh, campaigns of Genghis Khan. Because storytelling is such a huge thing and it is a big part of, uh, it's a big part of Hanan. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my favorite- Right, we touched on this. Yeah, we've before. talked about this and it's a thing that if if I've talked to if I've talked to you about Hanan at any point, you've probably heard me talk about this. Hanan's magic is story based, and this is one of the things I'm honestly kind of most proud of with Hanan because, like, storytelling is one of the most human things we do, but it is a big deal in, you know, in African and Black circles. You know, we. There, there was this belief for a very long time that because there weren't as many written records for a lot of black history, that black folks didn't have history. This was one of those old colonial ideas that unfortunately dregs of it still kind of trickle out. But like black folks had writing systems and there are records of things that were written and read in Africa. Africa has epics. Africa has stories and traditions and similar things to say the Iliad and the Odyssey in terms of things that were orally told that were much, much later written down and codified. And that sort of oral tradition also made its way over to the U.S. You know, um, all right ugly, ugly bit of history time, but it is kind of fundamental to understanding why I do things the way I do and why the stories are so important in Hanan. Uh, Storytelling was how enslaved Africans kept what culture alive that they could when we were separated from those old uh, structures, those old connections and stripped of our stripped of the language you know forced into groups that would not have been what was going on back on the continent and people kept things alive kept those connections through storytelling uh i sometimes call it the frayed tether the tether is still there and you don't always know what exactly it's connected to or what it means, but you know it's there and you know the far distant point that it goes back to. And 
oral tradition when you've got a people who are barred from learning to read and write was one because because that's the thing that I think is kind of hard to remember even it was not that long ago I have a relative that's only a couple of greats back where she would have been living in a time where it would have been illegal for her to learn to know how to read and write but so it's not that far removed and so those oral traditions of stories kept things alive you know i don't have the ability to know you know a whole bunch of the the myths and legends directly like you know i've got friends who have you know uh celtic heritage and stuff and they they talk about you know they talk about how their parents would leave out a bowl of milk for the fairies or something like that i don't have that but i do have bits and pieces there are legends about anansi the spider and the keeper of all stories there's uh, all sorts of little bits of folk wisdom and information that you can kind of get some kind of picture and for me that's magic and so i couldn't and so it just made sense especially because you know we talked about again going back to the whole celtic thing and going back to what the inspirations for stuff are you think about a wizard in a lot of uh, european inspired settings you know you get the gandalf you get the the dude with the beard and the robes and maybe the hat well i think and i could be wrong here but i think there was a lot of inspiration from the celtic druid in those or at least drawings of them that people would deal with later so yeah so then i'm like all right what is the magic user that makes sense in this case you know what when i'm trying to design what this kind of character with these magical abilities looks like what am i doing well west africa has a class of storyteller called griots they were oral history keepers they were people who kept the histories and songs and stories of their community well that sounds like it maps on pretty well to a society where magic comes from stories so that becomes the inspiration for my looks and my designs there and that's one of the other things is we're dealing with a situation where it can be scary but sometimes cuz i'm charting ground that's only starting in some ways to be charted more and more so kind of developing the visual language is tricky there's not as many obvious shorthands for people to immediately latch on to oh that's what this is so you're also kind of having to do the work of teaching people this visual language you're using at the same time Fortunately, I'm not doing that alone. There's a ton of new folks doing their own culturally uh inspired settings from different marginalized groups and I I love that we're all kind of working these things out together. Oh yeah, yeah. I I I also want to point out because um you know, as I'm doing these interviews and talking to people and blah blah blah, you find that you have a lot of people who even if they are um immersed in the culture that they're writing about or whatever everybody is trying to be respectful of whatever culture uh-huh. um that you're writing a setting about oh, yeah. even if it's yours because you do realize that you don't have the only experience absolutely in that culture. like i don't right. want like 
I don't want to insult my cousins. I don't. I don't want to insult. I don't want right. to insult my like you know cousins over on over right. on the continent. You know. But there's so many people who think that that you know anyone who writes, especially anyone who's like, yeah, we don't see this in the community, and we want it, blah blah. Like, there's people who genuinely think that if I write something, you know, specifically about being blind or partially blind or visually impaired, that I'm speaking from absolute as if for my own community. Right as a whole and i'm like no i'm speaking from my own personal experiences period but that you know but that's one of the frustrating things about being about not being seen in a space a lot is you become yes. kind of the rep you become the representative on this and there is this there's this weird frustrating balance sometimes where people who are not members of certain marginalized groups get to be individuals but then yes. you kind of, but you also kind of get lumped in as a representative of whatever group you're dealing with and you know i've seen i see this sometimes where people are just we humans love categories we love putting stuff we love putting stuff in boxes it's it's an evolutionary adaptation i think that kind of helped us survive but when it comes to interfacing with other people it can kind of get in the way yes absolutely but there's there's all and there's all but again there's nuance and nuance is hard on the internet <laughs> exactly and i think one of the things that i i definitely want to emphasize with all of all the stories that we're telling, you know, on this podcast that one, you know, if you are genuinely trying to be respectful, I do know that the internet will absolutely, you know, bear down on you and feel like everything is, is wrong, blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot of people that are terrified to make that step. Fully understandable. Nobody wants to be canceled. Nobody wants to feel like they, they fucked up something good they were trying to do. Involve other people of that culture or that have done that setting or that would be of whatever that you're trying to, whether right, even if it's a your own game that isn't being streamed. Yeah, that's a big thing is that some of this definitely comes down to, um, down to platform and what and what your responsibilities are if you're showing stuff off. Nobody's going to barge into your game and confiscate your dice. We may not watch, especially if you're feeding into the stereotypes and everything else. But I mean, if you ask to begin with, if someone comes up to me, I am so happy to tell you how to respectfully make blind characters. I cannot answer for any other disability other than I have an immune disorder and am photosensitive. I can talk about those. But beyond that, I won't. I can definitely um, steer you in the direction of someone else who right. can. But I'm going to tell you about my personal experiences. But I am in an incredibly small community, and by all means, I may be the only partially blind person any of you all know in this community. Even though there are others of us, but that's okay. I realize I'm kind of up there as far as everyone knowing me but there's a lot of other people in this community that are marginal marginalized that you can absolutely like just ask any of us about our settings the games we play blah, blah. we love to talk about it as you as uh, you definitely know on my end <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, you can't shut us up. You about can't. It. Fucking can't. I, I have I have coworkers who I have watched their eyes glaze over as I try to explain stuff in my home game to them. And my and my I don't work in a library. Do you have any idea the level of nerddom in my branch? My <laughs> library. Right? I think the only not I think there's maybe three non-nerds on staff. Right. Like yeah, and as enthusiastic as you might be about your world and your setting in your game, so are we. So yeah, ask us. You know, I say it all the time. All the time. Just ask us. Be respectful us. about it. There's definitely a there's definitely ways to do this that are a problem. I, yes. I've had I've had yep. people come at me aggro, and it is not going to get you the uh, the answers you want. Right, but right. We can usually tell the difference between somebody coming aggro and somebody who is genuinely right. curious or genuinely confused. Right. You know, just come into like our discords and be like, hey. I have a quick question. What is a respectful way to do this? Or I saw this in a, in another setting and I really want to add it to mine, but I want to be respectful or I really want to do it justice. Yeah, it's like, um, okay, here's a great example. I have, in Hanan, I have uh, the Zanza and the Zanza are inspired by the, uh, among other groups, the Amazigh people who are a group that primarily has territory in North Africa and uh, some of the nomadic uh, groups that are, uh, that move across the Sahara and were at one point kind of instrumental in the trans-Saharan trade. Uh, Those are the two major inspirations for the Zanza. And I've been fortunate to, uh, fortunate enough to make friends with a few people who are Amazi because I was not, because before I was using a different term that was not particular, that was not as respectful. It is kind of among those groups, it was seen as a bit of a slur. So I stopped using that term once I knew more about what was going on. That's why I use Amazig now, because that's the preferred uh, term for the group themselves. That's what they use amongst themselves. And it's the same thing. It's like pronouns, ask someone their pronouns. Ask them how they want to be referred to themselves, whether it's their culture, whether it's their history, their occupation, their name. It's allow people to express how they see themselves in the place in, or, or their place in the world and their culture. And you'd be amazed just how much inspiration you find. Oh, yeah. The way I like to think about it is when you are trying to make something especially uh, when you're trying to make anything really, try to make it a love letter to the things that inspired you. That kind of thing will help you keep from being reductive or being stereotypical about the thing. If you can, if you can find a way to really put your love of a thing and sincerity about it into it, that will come across but it will also mean that you're going to put in the work to make it the best thing that you can and bring in, again, that nuance. But also... And that is going to set you apart. Yes. And help you do better in this community. 
One of the things that people tend to fall into without even realizing it is stereotypes. Uh-huh. Now, obviously, or maybe not, I shouldn't say obviously, because again, some people don't realize it. So, especially with um, African cultures, the first thought that a lot of people have is again, you know, holding a spear, uh, shell jewelry or bee jewelry, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And, you know, all of that. How, one, what are some of the stereotypes that you're really tired of seeing? Um, What, how inaccurate do you feel they are in the research you have done? And what is a better alternative? Oh man, okay. So some of the stereotypes that I've seen, some of the stuff I've seen a lot, you know, I've seen this idea of inherent squalor and poverty. I have seen these ideas that, uh, you know, the pe- people aren't at all educated. That again, there that there is no writing. That there is only oral history and the and the big idea that it cannot be trusted. Right. Uh, and of course the. Uh, and go the the spear wielding aggressive uh, aggressive character licking for language yeah lacking for language all those sorts of things yep and oh my gosh the level of inaccuracy is so high one of the things that people don't realize is that like there would have been a point in the ancient Greek world. Again, if we're going to go back to antiquity here or the mid- or medieval period, there was a point, especially during the Middle Ages, when much of the classical ancient knowledge was yet to be rediscovered in Europe. This is where we get the Renaissance when all that stuff came back. There we go. But do you know where, do you know, but a lot of people don't quite recognize the history of how the Renaissance happened. It was because crusaders ended up going over to the Middle East who'd been keeping all of the information from antiquity when the classic uh, antiquated empires fell, like again, Rome and all that. A lot of that stuff and that information ended up in the hands of the scholars in the Muslim world. And a lot of that stuff Mm -hmm. didn't get rediscovered or people get reinterested in it again until after the Crusades. West Africa in Mali across the Sahara was connected with the Arab Muslim world at the time. And they had that information too. There was uh, and there you have Mansa Musa who is the richest person in history was a black West African king who had so much gold that it was being shipped. A lot of Europe's gold came from West Africa. This man took a road trip, the classic uh, pilgrimage to Mecca that all Muslims are supposed to make at least once in their life, the Hajj. This man's Hajj was so extravagant, he crashed the economy of Europe because he bought too many tchotchkes. (laughs) He just 
gave out gold because he was trying to show off his generosity. And he tanked the value of gold by himself. And these are things we don't hear and and would be, oh my God, that would be so much, well. There's, and, and there were, so the other thing is that Africa in terms of geography and environment and climate has a lot of nomadic societies. And that's another thing, you know, we don't think about Africa as having these enormous monuments and things, but one, even though we want, I know, I know that this is a long-standing thing and I don't want to get into it, but Egypt is in Africa. Carthage is in Africa. Right. Also, Africa is a continent, not right. A it's a it's a continent, not a country. Uh, you have you have uh, Great Zimbabwe in South Africa. You have mm-hmm. there. While there are only a few places in Africa where it's really relatively easy to set up stationary civilizations, where it could be done, it was done. Right. Where it could happen, it did. And that's, and also there's the idea, there's also this really weird idea that nomadism is somehow less culturally significant or less technologically advanced than agrarian societies. And when I say agrarian, I mean you stay in one place and you grow your food, as opposed to being nomadic, where you are kind of living off the land, finding things as you go. But one of the most famous nomadic groups in the world also had the largest contiguous land empire in history, the the Mongols. Right. So, and they they brought in experts in various technologies from pretty much every place they conquered. So just because a group is nomadic does not mean you are not dealing with a culture, does not mean you are not dealing with a technologically advanced you know, group. They just didn't want to stick in one place. And there may be millions of reasons for that. And that's another thing that goes back to, again, doing your research and being kind of nuanced and thorough when you're doing your world building. Geography, geography matters so much and, and affects the way people have to live and interact with the world. So like all that stuff, all that stuff is connected and intertwined. Yes. Uh, Even just touching on that really briefly, um, a desert doesn't mean people are nomadic. People gravitate towards resources, but they gravitate towards places that have numerous resources. And they tend to settle on places where it has the most resources that allow them you have as much of a self-sustaining society as they can. If you are in a place, and it doesn't matter if it's a jungle, if it's a desert, if it like a forest, none of that matters if the resources aren't there. It is just as likely to have a nomadic people going from one resource to another in order to still have a self-sustaining society. Absolutely. And you can even get places where you have a agrarian stationary society and a nomadic society in the same general area coexisting for different re and you know you might have that that group may stay nomadic for its own reasons. Right. It can be religious, it can be just cultural, it can be political. Like there's it doesn't 
It doesn't ever have to be one. It doesn't always have to be conflict. It doesn't mean that there's, it's always a lack of something that makes them nomadic. It can just be as simple as this is their belief that staying in one place too long will whatever, you know, or, you know, like, and there are, we have endless, endless uh, examples in our own world history of this happening. 100%. And, and I love, and again, I love that. Humans, humans are messy. And as storytellers, we love mess. Speaking of nomadic tribes, doesn't mean they all live in right. tents. Doesn't doesn't mean that they, you know, again, live only in the desert. Doesn't mean that they only eat bugs. I don't know. That was one of the ones I read. And I was like, why? Yeah, I don't I don't know on that one either. I really don't. But yeah, so like the uh oh, there's also again going back to uh clothing and stuff. That's another that's another weird stereotype that I see sometimes. Uh is that only, you know, there's only one type of outfit or clothing or whatever, and or that there is a single African look. And I'm like, Africa is a enormous continent filled with so many different ethnic groups and uh, ethnic groups and histories. Like, I I remember that this is oh, this is gonna this is gonna sound really weird, and I don't know if. Uh, I don't. If you ever want to Google something, there are there are two really interesting differences in uh, two really well known bits of West African clothing, specifically. Uh, I got hired to do a job once where somebody wanted me to do some combination clothing costume design that combined kind of West African fashion, specifically kind of from the Mali area and 1920s American flapper fashion. Oh, wow. So yeah, that was, that, that was an interesting project. But uh, the thing that they sent me, they, in, the, in the brief, I was given a brief to combine kente, which is a very specific type of clothing style. It's, a, it's basically a wrap kind of outfit from Ghana, from uh, Ghana, which is in that kind of Mali, modern African area. And uh, it, historically, it was a royal outfit. It was designed, it was supposed to only really be worn by the king and the high ranking people at court. And it was this very carefully wrapped thing. It's got these really intricate, cool colors and patterns. Uh, in the modern day, a lot of uh, African-American or black uh, college grads will have a like version of this when they graduate college. That's probably the place a lot of people have seen it. And it is a it's kind of a connection to, again, that whole that whole tether back to the motherland situation. But the image the person sent me was not of Kente when they were sending me uh, references. It was not Kente. It was a different formal wear from a different nearby country. I can't remember what they were. I'll have to double check this. But it was an outfit called an agabada. But that's one of that is one of those. It is an important difference. But it's but they are and they're both gorgeous bits of clothing. By the way, they are absolutely they are absolutely the uh, the equal in my mind of just about any kind of 
royal or formal attire you might see in any kind of European setting. They're just different. Do you feel um, that it is harder for you to get heard or seen because you are creating uh, a setting that isn't, you know, the traditional medieval European. So this is one of those that I honestly don't know. I'm, there are times I feel like I'm a little, uh, that I'm a little distant from a lot of other folks in the space. I am not as involved in a lot of things as some folks are. I'm trying to be more so, but Right. Do you think that's you doing it or them doing it? I think it's a little bit me at this point. I think there's definitely a little bit of nervousness sometimes on my end to kind of throw myself out there more fully. Uh, but it's also just... Oh, God, we own love that feeling. <laughs> but it's also just the Internet's a big place. And sometimes it's really... And sometimes it takes a long time to find your audience or your audience to find you. I don't know if for me personally that that is the specific difficulty. Uh, I know for some people it definitely can be, and there's definitely a concern that it is. I have seen, like, I know there's a market for this. I know that there is a desire, there is a want for more of this. Uh, But I think in my case, it may be at the moment that that I'm still just, I'm still relatively early on in my career, and I'm relatively early on in building this. But I think the other thing is that there isn't a lot of obvious content for people to kind of absorb. Because again, this is not this is not an RPG setting in the way that some other things are. This is me slowly trying to figure out even how to tell the stories that I want to tell in this setting. Uh, so I think some of the I think some of this is more the nascency problem that we are that I'm still in the very big the early stages of this, right? And I think once I think once I start telling the stories more fully, I hope once I start telling the stories of this more openly and pairing it with the art more and figuring out how to best do that, I hope is that that will start drumming up more and more interest over time, and as I get more and more out there. Do you, do you think that there's anything out there now that you particularly like that isn't? I mean, because we've talked uh, uh, that you've worked on the Motherlands. Um, and is there, I mean, other than them, because everyone knows who they are and they don't by now. They should. Shame they on should. You. So the other one that I really like mm-hmm. is uh, it's called the Wagadu Chronicles. Uh, that he does have an RPG setting, but it's also just kind of this big video game passion project uh, by a German-African uh, creator named Alan. And there's been talk about this in diff- a little bit here and there, but it's a thing that's been worked on for a long time. I got a chance to do some work for the RPG thing that they are doing. I don't know exactly when it's going to come out, so I can't talk too much about it yet. Gotcha. Still under NDA a little, still under NDA until it comes out. But I am so excited for what they put together because I've seen some of the internal stuff and yeah. it makes me right. so happy. There's another RPG setting that I like, but they've only ever done one thing called Kikanga. 
which is uh, a, another, it's a full-on role-playing system, but they, uh, they use cards instead of dice as kind of their uh, ways of introducing their randomness element, which we've seen in a few other games. That's right. Uh, the company that makes it is called MV Media. Again, they're, they do a whole bunch of stuff with Afrofuturism. They're the guys who gave me that first anthology job. Uh, key conga sword and soul role-playing game situation uh, they've got a lot of independent published stuff that you can find if that's a thing you're interested in and checking out they've got a lot of really passionate storytellers and a lot of really interesting different stuff that they'd probably be able to do more if more people bought it so again not a spot not not an ad just something just just a fan people who have put out some really interesting stuff in the last several years. Oh, absolutely. Um, okay, because I can ask this because you do work at a library. What are some really good references if somebody was like, I do want to include um, uh, Pan-African, mm-hmm. you know, cultures and stuff. What What are... Where can we send people? All right, so that's gonna. Websites so, so some of that is gonna. Some of that is gonna vary, uh, depending on, uh, depending on the library, depending on their uh, what they have access to. My strategy for this kind of thing, more more than books specifically, I'm gonna kind of talk strategy, research strategy. So, the first thing that I like to do is, again, know the topic I'm looking at and kind of get a sense of the terms that come up first. So you can just get that going with a basic Google search. Then from there, I like to uh, use those terms and I or that myth or find a myth or find a creature if that's the thing I'm dealing with. And I will go, then I will do Wikipedia. Don't trust anything you find on Wikipedia. But at the bottom, what you can find are their sources. Then you can check those sources. And if there's something that looks good, especially if it's written by somebody from wherever it is, from like the country or the continent you're dealing with, or the culture you're dealing with, if the author has that kind of background, uh, you can absolutely use that and a librarian can help you find that book, if for some reason you don't know where it is or you don't want to buy it or it's out of print, those are all resources that you can get access to that way. Um, there are all sorts of scholarly databases you can get access to through your libraries as well. Um, JSTOR will do some stuff for you, though I think that's mostly art-related things, if I remember correctly from when I was in college. Um, you can use uh, what's called WorldCat, which will help you find, again, libraries that have those uh, books you're looking for. And your librarian is probably going to use that to find the information they need to put in the request for whatever books you want to have sent to you. Be aware that that might take a while. Uh, scholarship is not an easy thing. There is a reason that in the past it took years to translate stuff because a book that you needed to do the translation might have come halfway across the world. <laughs> but yeah, um, and sometimes 
Uh, libraries will have, you know, access to Google Scholar, which will have all sorts of research papers and things that may not be as easily accessed through standard Google Scholar. Uh, they may have a, a paid, they may have a paid membership through the library that you can access to find things like that. If somebody is not so much into research, but would find fiction about it, that would be inspiring, informative, that really kind of dives into and does a lot of respect, whether it's you know, the author has done their studies and or they are of that culture or whatever. Do you have any favorite authors? I absolutely do. Uh, this, I know you this, do. <laughs> this, this is a I love this question and I will never shut them. I will never shut the fuck up about it. So I figured you'd like one it. <laughs> of the so one of the ones that I've read recently that I very much enjoyed. It's it's a young it's a young person's read. It is so good at come kind of recognizing the whole diasporic nature of American of African American men black myth uh, is tri- is the Tristan Strong series by Kwame Yambalia. Oh I think I've heard you of abs- that. you probably have if you've been in this space. Uh, Tristan Strong punches a hole in the sky is the first book. Uh, it's from Rick Reardon's imprint so it does the whole thing that Rick Reardon did where you know you've got the characters who interface with the Greek gods and stuff, except instead of the Greek gods, we're dealing with creature, uh, people and figures from black myth and folklore. So you get figures like Br'er Rabbit, uh, Br'er Fox, Anansi the Spider, John Henry. Uh, all of those figures show up in Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky. And there's little bits of things that I didn't know uh, when I went into it, like things like the idea of the bottle tree, which is a southern. Uh, which is a Southern Black uh, American tradition that believed you could trap certain kinds of evil spirits when the wind blew through blue glass bottles. They would hang from various trees. And uh, yeah, mm, there there was so much good stuff in that book. Uh, Then, if you want another good fantasy series uh, that definitely does some things differently, uh, there is uh, a book series called the burning series by evan winter uh the first book the rage of dragons is the first book uh the second is the fires of vengeance i know they're working i know he's working on the rest of the saga so that's a really good one uh that one is inspired by some things that i don't know very much about the main author is british and kosa and uh, kosa is the south is a uh south african ethnic group uh the, funny enough, in Black Panther, the language that was used for Wakanda is uh, Kosa. I actually knew that, oddly enough. Yep, that's one of my favorite little bits of trivia on that one. Uh, which is kind of interesting because, again, Kosa is South Africa. Wakanda is set in kind of Central East Africa, but that's a whole different thing. It was a very specific, it was a very specific choice that I would love to ask more about, but I do really enjoy it regardless. Uh, but anyway... So the, those, so that's kind of, so Casa history and myth is kind of the building blocks for that one. There's also Acacia, which is by a man named uh, David Anthony Durham. Book one is called War with the Main, and it is definitely one of the more, I only read the first book and I need to read the rest of it, but there is a, there is so much uh, interesting stuff in that one and the whole thing kind of does start from this interesting idea of 
what if an African empire was kind of the center of the world, the way that, you know, like Rome was at one point or something like that, but also plays with ideas of, you know, the fact that no empire can truly be just uh, and all of these things. So like, there's a lot of interesting thematic stuff in there. Um, this is not fantasy in the same way, uh, but I also read it relatively recently. First of all, I'm going to rec though. I'm going to do one other thing. It's not necessarily full on fantasy. She's more sci-fi and there's definitely Afro Afrofuturism, which is the genre that Black Panther falls into primarily. It's more sci-fi than fantasy. So, but anything by Octavia Butler is something that I definitely recommend reading. Uh, Octavia Butler is kind of the, the name in uh, black sci-fi and a lot of people will say that she is the name in black speculative fiction to begin with, you know, you know, starting from there. She's kind of the, the big name in the canon in that point. Uh, then, but the book I'm going to recommend here specifically is not one of hers. Uh, it's the Gilda stories by Jewel Gomez, which is vampire fiction. <laughs> oh, got my interest. But it is, uh, <laughs> it is black lesbian feminist vampire fiction. Again, uh, hello, like it was written for me. <laughs> it is so good and such a fascinatingly different take on vampires than I have seen in a lot of things. Oh, I love it. Uh, and it, and it, but it begins with the uh, the main character escaping slavery, and so there is definitely a different vibe in it than most. And so, but good. So that <laughs> Dracula has been told so many times. Just it's it's not even it's not even a dead horse. It's not even a stain in the ground in, anymore. It's just been beaten till there's a a, a hole now. It's not yes, you know, so much so. Let's. So, Can we have a new take on this or not? Like something, please help me. Absolutely. So yes, that one <laughs> yeah. and that one was written in oh gosh, the nineteen that was written in the nineteen nineties, I think. Uh well yeah. That's when all the vampire books and movies were really, really coming yep. out. So yeah, those that is kind of my beginner set there. That's kind of my beginner set there. Um if you're looking for just like but again, if you're looking for black fantasy kind of set in those sorts of African settings, uh, the burning, the burning is def the burning is definitely the big one that I think that I've been that I've really been enjoying and I'm excited for the next thing. Uh, the burning in acacia. Otherwise, clearly you can just message Aaron and he will talk your ear. You off. have no concept. <laughs> I yeah, I love, I love, I love my fantasy. It is right. It is my genre. Yeah. I believe heavily in the power of the genre to do real good because yes, absolutely. Because it has done some great things for me. There are all sorts of things that have shifted my perspective because I read a good fantasy book that gave yeah. me characters from a walk of life that I had not, that I would have not interfaced with otherwise that was done with a level of focused and careful nuance. Right. Or even even if even if I could recognize myself or whatever in it, I think the thing that I love the absolute most about 
the fantasy genre is that when you can when you can find a really good book that is so you can get so immersed in that it feels real it doesn't matter if there's dragons or people that can shoot lightnings from their fingertips or just you know move things with their thoughts like it still can somehow be immersive I think it makes all of us kind of feel like we can we have some sort of special power or something if we just again just say the right string of words in the correct order or you know find that magic key or you know find that magic space like like somehow some way we could if we just look hard enough we'll find it in our actual world i love that because that actually leads to another thing that i think can be really useful when building fantasy worlds look at the stuff around you and imagine what explanation you'd come up with for it if you didn't know what was causing it because fantasy is based on a lot of mythology and mythology served a purpose. Mythology, while it definitely is, again, those, those stories that are helpful as building blocks for a culture, we also used myth to explain things. Like the myth of, like the myth of Arachne is not just about, you know, hubris and don't insult the gods for a skill that they ostensibly gave you. It's an explanation for why spiders spin beautiful webs. So look at the stuff around you and be like, okay, if I didn't know what this was, what would I think was going on here? And especially like if think back when you were a kid and really didn't know too much of anything, you probably made up all sorts of explanations for things. I know I did. Oh, hell yeah. What is the average amount of hours a day you spend on creating your stuff just for the RPG space? So when I am, when I am not as busy as I could be, uh, that is usually somewhere around four hours on a day when I still do go to my day job. And then on the days when I don't have to do my day job, I can be working between anywhere from four to eight hours. When I am as busy as I can be, I have done eight, 10, 12 hour days. Hustle culture is real, people. And it sucks. (laughs) Yes, it does. It sucks. But one, gotta eat. And two, there, we don't just do this because we love it, but it sure as hell helps when you are having to meet that deadline to love what you're doing and find a way to love it. Absolutely. Because otherwise it becomes a slog. We, we've all had that project where we're just like, why did I take this job? Oh, right. Oh, right. My pantry was empty. Right. I needed to eat this week. That's why I took this job. Although let's oh here's another thing we should really be talking about the amount of time that uh, occurs between when you finish a project and when you get paid on average <sighs> so i'm actually really lucky i have rarely had to wait more than two weeks to be paid on a project 
Oh, you're really since lucky. I raised my prices. But before that, oh man, there and again, I haven't gotten that much work, and I've been really fortunate with the clients who have come to me. Right. But I have like I've got friends who they tell me horror stories where somebody takes six weeks to a month. To, or or more. more to pay them. You chase your checks so much. Like I have. Yes, you do. Like I have. I think the longest that I waited for one to come for one final thing to come through was a month. And that is a yeah. level of luck that most of my friends have not had. Right. And also, I, I, you know, you also have to take into account how often you're actually doing those projects in a year. So even if you happen to get paid, you know, on an average of every two weeks after you finish a project, that's great. But if you're only doing three of those projects a year, it's still brutal because the amount of time that you are spending without a paycheck to complete that project which I can't can't stress this enough. Uh, the amount uh, you don't get paid while you are working on a project. Nobody pays anybody to work as they're creating something. It is only when you are done, edits are done, everything else, it's been approved, then you get paid. For a lot of the big projects, that is absolutely that. With personal clients, I can sometimes get a 50% upfront, 50% on delivery. But there are other jobs where, yeah, no, you don't get paid until that is done. Some of the people, like there's, I once again am going to sing the praises of uh, Backroad, the Backroads RPG stuff, because they pay in installments. Uh, they can't all, but the thing is, there's relatively small. They can't pay the way that a big client can. And the big clients, they know they don't have to do that. So they don't. Well, I don't necessarily think, and, and again, I'm not defending um, businesses or corporations or anything like that. It, because as somebody who has worked, uh, in huge corporations and stuff, I can honestly tell you, it's not like they're like, oh, well, we know that we can wait, so we're going to. A lot of the times it is, okay, we can't we can't issue money towards something in case you don't actually meet that deadline, you don't do whatever, they have to pay another artist or writer. And then by the time it's like, okay, it's done, it's been approved, everything's been signed off on, which it always has to be approved, so that takes forever. That's the only time that it that the payment process even begins. Absolutely. That does yeah, that is that is a thing that has that I've seen. Yes. And bigger companies, especially like, you know, for examples, I work for Wizards of the Coast every once in a while. I don't work for them. Let me rephrase that. I do work for them. Yeah, just realized the way I said it. I do freelance work for them. I do not actually work for Wizards of the Coast. I'm not an employee. That, and that is, yeah, that's, that's definitely a distinction that I think it's good for us to make. A lot of illustrators are contractors. In-house employment doesn't often happen as much anymore. 
Right. And the other thing is, is that it, it's a matter I really, really want to point out that a lot of the stuff you're doing is work for hire. And that essentially means that they they own the art that you've created. It's theirs to sell and do with as they wish. Yep. If you're lucky, you can get something in the contract that lets you do like prints and sales and some other things. But right. But they they essentially own it and there's there's nuance to how copyright works and everything else but just know that you will have limits on that if that is the route that you want to go as an artist and these companies you know by the time that it goes through you know payment and everything else we're talking a couple of weeks easily the reason i haven't had a lot of that is because like i mentioned i'm still relatively at the beginning stages of my career, most of my clients so far have been smaller indies who don't have to go through the, uh, who don't have that long processing to make sure they can go through everything. And because they're smaller, they can take a little bit more risk if something goes wrong on my end. The biggest projects of my career so far were last year. And it's probably gonna be 2024 before I get to talk in depth about any of them. And it is killing me. And the other thing that, again, this one hasn't happened to me, but it is one that I have seen. Uh, I've got, uh, I have a a close acquaintance slash semi-mentor in Jason Rainville, who you all have probably seen do amazing work for Magic. He has a piece that has been, that he's talked about off and on, that has been in limbo for years now, and the project he painted for may have been scrapped, which means he may never get to show that piece. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And that's the other thing. I did, yeah. I did a map for Wizards of the Coast a long time ago that will never see the light of day. Yeah, I, in all fairness though, I was picked for a piece and uh, I was asked if I could make it and I did respond with this doesn't really fit my style but I will do the best I can we did the project and I got very little feedback for it and then it was like yeah not quite what we're looking for but I didn't even hear that part I was just told not a problem you know blah blah blah. they still pay you for it which is great Um, but what happened is the book came out without my map in it. Yeah, that's always the other fear. (laughs) But that's how I found out that they weren't using it. And so I contacted my art director. I was like, what happened? And they're like, oh, well, you know, you were right. It it didn't fit the aesthetic we were going for. I was like, could you have told me? Because, you know, I'm sitting here thinking I have my first Wizards book is going to be coming out, blah, blah. And then it just didn't happen. And, you know, so you will have projects with clients that will never see the light of day. I have I have a couple of maps that I now have it in my contracts that um, unless there's a unless you know that it's going to be like two years or whatever, however long for your project to come out. If within a year of that said project, that deadline if you don't show my work or you don't use it or whatever, I get to, I still get to continue the contract and still share it after the fact. Because 
do not have had that in my contract. I have some beautiful maps that will never be shown because I can't. Yeah, and that is that is another said law, another kind of dark sorcery. But I actually will have Lauren Walsh on who did who does a lot of contract work and everything else. And I I am so looking into really, really taking a nice deep dive with her. She's another business consultant along with me. So uh, uh, both of us have that history, I should say. Um, so it'd be really nice to kind of like dive into the nuances of contracts and stuff. Yeah, that is not something that I am super versed in yet. I'm hoping to get better. So I'm very big on putting things out in the universe. What would you like for you? What What's your future look like if you could write it yourself? So... Uh, I think a lot of people know, and I have, uh, I have put this out there more than once. I would love to get a chance to paint uh, characters for Wizards of the Coast. Uh, I would love to get to do some cards at some point. Are you sure? Because uh, you won't get paid for a long time. I can. I think I can deal with that. I'm. I've got some. I've got some things uh, that make that help deal with that a little bit. But I would love to paint some cards. I, I said I used to say specifically, give me the opportunity to paint a fairy in magic, but they're kind of moving him out of the story. So yeah. I don't know. Okay. But uh, give me but yeah, I would love an opportunity to paint a fairy if we're putting pie in the sky things out there into the universe. Hell yeah, you never know who's listening. Never know. Uh I would love to get a chance to do some book covers. Uh I would love, you know, I would love to get either adult fantasy or YA. I've been told my work kind of lands somewhere in this uncanny middle zone and it needs a little bit of polish to get in one direction or the other. But uh, I would love to do either or both. It would be, I have a very specific art director and uh, Lauren Panapinto, if you are listening, I am putting together a package to send uh, to work with you in the near future. It's coming. Nice. Because she has gotten on me a couple of times, like, send me some stuff. I hope she's uh, so listening. <laughs> I really do, too. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it, Lauren. I'm working. Uh, and I want that I'd love to get a chance to do uh, some more maps just for, uh, again, just I love map fantasy. So getting a chance to do that for Lauren would be a great time. Uh there is also, again, I would love to get more work on some like bigger RPG projects or bigger RPG things. I would like to send in, uh, I'm working on putting a portfolio together to send out to try to pick up something with Critical Role or Dimension 20. All of those folks would be, I think, would be fun to work with. Uh, I can tell you definitely Critical Role is a blast to work with for me personally, but you know. Exactly. But uh, I really only work with like one person. So <laughs> that. Well, that's not true. I've done I've done some smaller projects with a couple of the cast members, but it would be so much fun to get a chance to do like the character portraits. Right. Uh, the big and the big thing, if I can write down just the absolute pie in the sky things, I would love to be able to have the time and the support to do 
fully illustrated novels for some of the ideas that I had in my head for Hanan. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, I love the thought of being able to tell some of the stories that are in my head for that world. Right. Using, you know, doing that. And one day, maybe one day, uh, having it to where I'm not the only one telling stories in that world. Yeah. There is a part of me that would, I think, enjoy a certain amount of seeing what else uh, I haven't even thought of yet that somebody would find that matches what Hanan is for and what it's supposed to be. Right. Uh, especially since uh, while I use Hanan interchangeably with the continent and the world itself, Hanan is not the only continent in that world. It's just the only one I'm interested in exploring right now. Right. I know that Hanan has had outside invasions. I know that Hanan has had, while it is primarily isolated now, it has had contact with the outside world, kind of in a similar way to you know a few other isolated nations throughout the world in our history. Mm-hmm. So I know there's other things going on beyond its borders. I just don't know what they are yet. Right. And hopefully I'll have time uh, to figure all that out. I'm enjoying finding out as much about that world as I enjoy telling people about it. And I learn something new every time I sit down to either write or paint something.